Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I hope that these four verses that are before us are precious to you. You might want to consider even memorizing them. I have recently emphasized Colossians 3, 1 through 4, the first four verses of that chapter, and some of you have memorized those verses, and I hope that was profitable to your souls. Some of you heard an encouragement yesterday at the quiz that after quizzing is over for young people, they should continue to memorize. You know, when you've got verses that you're working on memorizing, you can say them while you're driving in the car instead of thinking about what you're going to do at work or what you're going to do after work. When you're in bed at night, you don't know what to think about and you're trying to keep off discouraging, debilitating thoughts. You can be quoting verses to yourselves. It's a very useful little device to give you the Word of God at any time of day or night. You don't need a Bible in front of you or even one of your cell phones with apps. Uh, these are four wonderful verses. We've loved them for a long time. And we want to delight in them slowly, as we did last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day in the first assembly, we only got through six, wor ver six words of the first verse. Uh, all the Father giveth me. And they're wonderful six words. And I hope that you have favorite words in these four verses. Like lose nothing. Like raise it up at the last day. Like all that the Father giveth me. Or even shall come to me. I will in no wise cast out. Those are all wonderful statements jam-packed here in a summary of salvation given to unbelievers. Telling them that they were not part of this group. The context of the Word of God is far different than what most people think it is. These verses here are not Jesus explaining salvation to His apostles over lunch. This is Jesus condemning people He had fed at lunch that they were not true believers. Let's read these four verses. John chapter 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Amen. This morning we started in Hebrews 2, that we should not neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Right here. See, this is before Peter and James and John went out and took the Lord's word with the power of Pentecost to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ with apostolic doctrine and tradition. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant and its message. This is what is different than Moses. What is better than Moses. This is the gospel of salvation from eternal damnation to everlasting life with our Father in heaven. It was first spoken by the Lord, and we get to learn it right here when it was spoken by the Lord and recorded for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the pen of John. Love these verses. Amen. We don't want to agree with them and call it quits. 
We want to see the person in them. We want to see the finished work in them. We want to see the hope in them, lest we be ensnared with the things of this life, which are so far inferior to the things described here. Grasp the overall context of this chapter and what immediately came before it. Jesus has just said in verse 36, that ye also have seen me and believe not. Now verse 40 is going to say, everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. Verse 37 is going to say, all the Father giveth me shall come to me. But you people won't come. You've seen me and you don't believe. This is harshness to tell a group of people that have been following you and following you rather diligently and are believers and in this context, even by the Holy Spirit, are called disciples. They are called disciples a couple of times in the verses that come up next, but they're unbelievers and they're all going to turn and go away because they're not real believers. And Jesus confronts them saying, you've seen me, but you won't believe on me. But I want to tell you something about the truth of salvation and God's electing grace. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. But no man can come except the Father draw him, and that's why you people are going to be murmuring at me as soon as I get done with these four good verses. When he gets done with these four good verses, the next three verses are the Jews murmuring against Jesus because he had said he came down from heaven, and they just were not going to accept that. Well, on what basis had they accepted his miracle of he- miracles of healing, his miracle of multiplying the loaves and his fishes, and his miracle of walking across the Sea of Galilee to get to Capernaum before they could? What's going on in their little heads? What's going on in their confused minds? They murmur at Christ. What would you? What should we do when we hear four verses like that? Lord, that is glorious doctrine. Teach us more. More, Lord. What would you have us to do? Men and brethren, or Lord and Savior, what should I do? That's how other men responded to the preaching of the gospel. But what a difference. What response do you have? It's, it's, it's crucial. What's the chapter here for? The chapter here for is to press us to believe in a saving way to believe in a way that satisfies the description of God's word about true faith. That's what John tells us at the end of this gospel in chapter 20 and verse 31. And so at several points in the gospel, he's going to point out those that believed on him but weren't true believers, weren't part of his elect, weren't part of his regenerate family. We want to humble ourselves before the passage and Lord, show me everything I should get out of these verses and help me love the one preaching them, love the one spoken of here, appreciate the salvation described, and live for him who's coming for me, and will raise me up in the last day. All that the Father giveth me. Jesus drew a distinction between these belly worshipers and the elect of God. In verse 36, you won't come to me. Even though you've seen me, you don't believe me. Believing and coming is the same thing. It's compared over and over in this chapter. Coming to Christ, believing on Christ, they're the same things. You won't come to me, but all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And that is the general rule of the Word of God. 
And so he draws this contrast to his audience that you are not, not part of God's plan of redemption. For six verses, these four and verses 44 and 45, he will condemn these unbelievers as reprobates that are not born again. Now before we get to the next few words, all the Father giveth me, we covered last Lord's Day and I'm not going to review, shall come to me. So we want these next four words. Make sure you understand the connection of these four words with what comes next. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. It does not say, if you will come to me today, my Father will save you. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. It does not say, if any come to me, then the Father will give them to me. No, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. It does not say, those that come to me are the ones the Father gives me. It does not say, the Father gave to me the ones that would come to me. It says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The eternal initiating act for eternal life is unconditional election, period. All that the Father giveth me, and those are the words that start off these four verses, and they start off the five phases of salvation, and they are the first cause of redemption. God giving us to Christ. All that the Father giveth me. And it was done when you didn't exist. And it was done when Jesus didn't exist. Except by covenant. And I'm speaking of the man Christ Jesus, the Redeemer. The Word of God fully existed forever. But... According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. That's when we were given to Christ and that started everything. Before the foundation of the world. Before God built the Garden of Eden. Before God made elephants with a long nose. God chose us in Christ Jesus and assigned Jesus Christ to be the surety for our salvation and sent Him to die for us in the fullness of time 4,000 years later. 2,000 years ago. And it wasn't until you were conceived in your mother's womb that God could send His Spirit to regenerate you. The five phases of salvation are all here. The vital is the hardest to find because it's assumed until we get to verses 44 and 45. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, drag him, pull him, bring him. Yes, by almighty force and power, otherwise none of us would come because no man can come. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. The eternal, the initiating act for eternal life is unconditional election. No one has ever even thought of coming to Christ without God initiating that. Whether in the Bible it's described as being born again, you can't see the kingdom. In the Bible it's described as being of God so that you can hear God's words. In the Bible it's called having your heart opened so that you can attend to the things of the gospel. So that you can pay attention to them and listen to them. Right. Shall come to me. The doctrines involved here are total depravity and unconditional election. That anyone would ever come to Christ is because God had to overcome their total depravity and rebellion against Him. 
but he shall do it. He will do it. They shall all be taught of God. Verse 45 is going to teach us. There is an internal teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit by the sovereign power of God according to his eternal counsel that brings us to believe on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in the middle of shutting down these belly worshipers that wanted more loaves, gives them election. All that the Father giveth me. And he's not content with it in verse 37. Because he repeats it again in verse 39. All which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. He repeats it. This doctrine of election that God's given me certain ones to redeem and not a single one's going to be lost, they're all going to be raised up again in the last day. And that resurrection we've already read about in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it's a horrible thing. People are raised up to the resurrection of damnation and they're raised up to the resurrection of life. We're going to be raised up to the resurrection of life. Everyone in these four verses, starting with our election in Christ. First, the words shall come to me. Coming to Christ is to believe on him. The premise of this whole passage is believing on Jesus in a life-changing, sacrificial, submissive, humble way. It was brought up in verses 28 and 29 when they asked the Lord, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? What do you want from us to please God so that you can give us bread? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So we know going through this passage, the real issue at stake is believing on Christ. Now they believe in a certain way. Let's see, verse 2 of the chapter. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. So they believed he had miracle power, but they didn't believe he was the Son of God and Lord of their lives that they should submit to and give him every part of their lives. You can see the parallelism in verse 35. Do you know what parallelism is? It's two clauses that run side by side and and are to be considered as equivalents and comparative, and they'll use different words to help define words right in a context. It's a common way of writing in the Bible. Can you think of a book of the Bible that has a lot of parallelisms? Good. The, the parallelisms of the book of Proverbs, and often two clauses stated side by side, one positive, one negative, or two positive compared by a four. And so here we have one in verse 35. Look at it. Jesus said unto them, I... And the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, do you think thirst and hunger are different in this verse? Or are they both metaphors for eternal life? They're, they're metaphors for eternal life. But notice how we get to eternal life. It's by two different ways that by comparison in this parallelism are equivalents. They're synonyms. He that cometh to me, in the first clause, he that believeth on me, in the second clause. There's three more of these before we can get out of the chapter, but I'm going to let them go. I hope that you believe that coming to Christ is to believe on him in a life-changing, humble and submissive, sacrificial, costly, selfless way. It is not mental assent. The devils give mental assent to God. The devils give mental assent to the Lord Jesus Christ being the Holy One of God. Many people in John gave mental assent 
to him being someone special, a prophet from God. But the Lord, no. The full Messiah that, that deserved their, their all in all, no. And that difference is what we want to examine ourselves about to make sure that we're true believers. The general rule is that all God's elect will hear and see and come to Jesus Christ. He used the universal all, ordinarily understood, there's no reason except the exceptions we know, to condemn these unbelievers as being reprobates. He used the word all to tell the ones he was speaking to, you're not part of these. Because he wanted to point out, mine, my sheep, hear my voice and they follow me. You won't hear my voice, you don't see me, and you don't want to follow me. You just want to follow your lusts. You want to follow your bellies. You want more bread. You want me to feed you every day like Moses fed your fathers. He was not instructing his disciples here, as I've mentioned several times, as much as condemning these carnal gluttons. The contrast is stark and consequences severe, yet it's sweet. Say that again, Pastor. The contrast is stark, and the consequences severe, yet they are sweet. The consequences of being on the wrong side of verses 37 through 40 are going to hell. That's the consequence. The consequence is these people that turned away from him end up in the lake of fire in the great day of judgment. That's a terrible consequence. And it's severe. However, it's sweet. Because the Apostle Paul said that preaching the gospel causes us always to triumph in Christ. Exactly. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to another the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? I mean, I just preach the gospel, Paul said, and some reject it and prove that they deserve to go to hell. He said that in Acts chapter 13, when he had an audience of these same kind of people. He said, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And that's what we want to do right now. I'm sorry that the context has this sobering aspect, but I've got to preach the whole council. Yet, brethren, let's celebrate these verses. We're going to stand before God. The books are going to be opened. Our works are going to be known. And there's going to be two words that come out of a mouth that speaks eternity. Guilty. And there'll be no intercessor. There'll be no priest. There'll be no pope. And Mary won't be the mother of God in that place. Right. But there'll be another word. Amen. And we thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth. Forgiven. Amen. Forgiven. Right. And it's all right here. And the dividing line is 36 and 37. You folks do not belong in what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say applies to those that come to me. They have everlasting life. I'll raise them up at the last day. I won't lose a single one of them. And all the Father giveth me shall come to me. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is coming with vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. The general difference between men is gospel faith. That's how it shows up. He that believeth on me and is baptized, 
shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. It's that simple. Mark 16, 16. That is the evidence of eternal life or the lack thereof. That is the general rule of the Bible. That is what we preach. That is what we press. That is what we need to preach and press more. And that is what we need to examine ourselves over. Have I believed in a true way and have I been baptized truly in obedience and am I living up to my baptism? Just to go under H2O proves nothing and does nothing. It's to live out that baptism. That's why I gave you Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Does anyone want to stand and quote it to me? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek, oh, yeah, seek those things which are above. Where are those things? Amen. That's, that is what baptism should do to us. Change us to be upward-looking, upward-seeking, and upward-loving persons rather than this horizontal, loving, seeking persons like the rest of the world and most Christians, so-called Christians. And I use the word like the Holy Spirit used the word disciples. They weren't real disciples. Just like most Christians aren't real Christians. Little Christ, you live like a little Christ. Really? Show me. Lord, help us. That's the general rule of the gospel. The general rule still allows for unconverted elect like infants, idiots, and Jews that we're able to find in 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans chapter 11, verses 28 and following. But context is these disciples that did not truly believe, and so Jesus has weeded them out. Primitive Baptists are notorious for seeing most men as unconverted elect. We likely know the Bible exceptions better than they do, but it is not the rule. The rule of the Bible is what I just said to you. Amen. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, and I've got to ask you, have you come to Jesus Christ in such a way that it proves your own salvation? Did these people think they were pretty sincere? Did they want to make him king? Did they follow him? Did they ask him, what, might, what can we do to work the works of God? They were not saved. In John chapter 8, it's just a couple pages away. It's easy for you to find. Look at verse 31. Let's get verse 30. It says it twice, so we can have it twice. John 8, 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he wasn't talking about Rome. And he wasn't talking about getting out of servitude or slavery to become an, a paid employee or a master. He was talking about spiritual bondage to the lust of their flesh. You may, you may think I'm too hard sometimes picking on your faith and asking you to check your faith to see if it's biblical faith, but I'm doing it because the Bible spends so much time doing that. Right. Some of you young people have read and memorized the epistle of James recently, and James chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. It's nothing. It's what the devils have. And then it lists two great, a patriarch and a woman of the Old Testament that were justified by works, and it says so. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, that's Abraham, and not by faith only. And then Rahab is brought up as an example of justification by lying to the, to the city magistrates and sheriff, police, 
to hide the spies of God's people. It's works. You know that I've given you this passage, John 8, many times. And you know where it goes. He's going to end up in just a few verses. The 44th verse, he's going to say, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. You have not been delivered. You have not found the freedom from those lusts of his because you're not born again. Why can't you even understand my speech, folks? He's saying to them, the ones that believed on him. Why can't you understand my speech? Because you cannot hear my words. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. But they believed on him. Are you with me? This is... Why would Paul write the Corinthian church where he founded it, converted all the early members of that church, and he would write to them and say, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith or not? Why would he write that? Because this is a serious matter. So I'm asking you, have you come to Jesus Christ in such a way that it proves your own salvation? We can't be content with intellectual assent. We can't be content with agreement with truth. The devils believe the truth. Anyone can believe the truth. Agree with the truth. A natural man can agree with the truth, but will the truth change him? We can't be content with your profession of faith. We can't be content with your excitement at doctrine. We can't be content with your baptism, your church membership, or any other such things the natural man or devils are capable of doing. It's a changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Old things are passed away and things are become new. That's what makes the difference. The Apostle Paul described that as a man being in Christ. It changes lives. Intellectual belief falls short because Jesus is going to rule in chapter 8 where I just showed you that that's insufficient. In chapter 2, he already taught us it's insufficient when he would not commit himself to a group of believers because he knew what was in their hearts. It was not sincere and true belief. Temporary faith without continuing as a disciple is not enough. Jesus Christ came and reconciled, according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, those that continue and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1.23, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, then you're showing that Jesus Christ died for you. So have you come to Christ? It's not a momentary decision. That's Arminian garbage. It's a life. There may be a moment where you say, Lord, the rest of my life is yours. Take me and use me. Glorify yourself to me and through me. Whatever you want, I'll give you. Here am I. Send me. It may have moments like that, but it is a changed life. It's never looking back at a statement like that. Paul never looked back at a statement like that. He never looked back to his statement on the road to Damascus. Do you know what Paul said about the assurance of his eternal life and that he was a real believer? I have kept the faith. I have finished my course and I have fought a good fight. That's a changed life. James condemned and mocked faith without sacrificial works, which I just mentioned to you. The devils believe and tremble. Lord, help us be better than having devilish faith in this church in any single person. Jesus said you cannot be his disciple without such works. If you're not willing to hate the dearest relationships in life compared to him, you're not good enough for him, period. You can't even get close. 
He wants you to forsake all that you've had, all that you've known, all of your relationships, and to hate them in comparison to Him. And He lists them all for us to be a true disciple. You cannot be my disciple. That is the way Jesus preached, and that's the way Jesus measured true disciples. Where are you this morning with me? Where am I this morning? I'm with the Lord. I see exactly the force of these verses. They frighten me like they should. They force me to examine myself. They force me to come clean. They force me to repudiate anything that's compromising my total dedication and passionate embrace and service of Christ. That's what they're here for. This is not Salvation 101. This is Reprobation 101. Because he's telling some that they're reprobates. How do Bible salvation examples are dramatic life-changing events, or they result in dramatically changed lives. The Gadarene, that's someone who met Jesus. There was a change. Zacchaeus is someone who met Jesus. Self became negligible to him. How much did he have left when he got done? Lord, as he popped out of that sycamore tree and everybody had to make room for him since the five-foot guy could see Jesus. He was a man of short stature. Lord, I sell right now today half of all that I have to give to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Could that have seriously impacted his assets? When you chop them in half and the half you have left you offer to anybody to come that you've wronged and you'll restore fourfold. (laughs) Okay, let's just think about it for a minute. If you've wronged somebody, you've taken one. If he comes to you and you give four back, the math doesn't work well. It's a positive one minus four. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm just... Zacchaeus had a life-changing event. You know, we cannot stop with a flannel graph lesson that we got when we were children in a Sunday school of a little short guy up in a sycamore tree who jumped out to take Jesus to lunch. What we've got to get out of those 10 verses are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation has come today. Salvation has come today to this house. When did salvation come to you? And is it still there? Because if it left, it wasn't real salvation. Where is it? Is it changing you right now? What can you give him that's better? Why don't you do it? Why are you so selfish and restrictive on him? Paul would call it, why have you tightened up your heart? Your heart should be enlarged toward the Lord, giving more and more. Us older folks want to burn ourselves out for the Lord. Where's your flame? Where's the passion? We've got to get this. What happened on the day of Pentecost? I had you read that passage last night. Those are men that truly believe. Look at their changed lives. And those lives, does it say they continued? Yeah, it says they continued. They continued right on with those apostles and their fellowship, doctrine, prayers, breaking of bread from house to house. in the ten- How often do they go to church? In Acts chapter 2? Daily. Daily. And, you're, and you don't like going once a week? Okay. You're a John 6 hearer. Mm-hmm. Repent! Amen. And beg God that there might be mercy for you. Amen. Repent! 
Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then he did it the rest of his life. He just didn't say it once. Cornelius, look at, he had his whole household converted. He brought them all. They were all willing to follow him, to, to hear the apostle Peter. Lydia, as soon as she was baptized, she grabbed Paul and his traveling preaching companions and said, listen, if you've judged me to be faithful at all, stay in my house. I want to be known for hospitality. How did she learn that? How did she know that? Because she had a change, and it was from God. And immediately she wanted to do dramatic things. Not just attend church. She didn't tell Paul, thank you for baptizing me, brother. I'll see you next Sunday in church. She begged him to come and stay with her and those men that were with him. The jailer took Paul home and washed his wounds and fed him and rejoiced with his whole household. Can you see them dancing around the kitchen as they've got him laid out, washing his wounds off? Read the passage if you don't think I'm exaggerating. The man was very excited because he was truly saved. Right. He was ready to commit Harry Carey. And Paul saved him from that and then told him about the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesus, they brought all their books, their books of magic. The value of the pile was 50,000 50, pieces of silver. Wow. Jesus was betrayed for 30, 50,000. They burned their books of magic. They were going to have nothing to do any further with horoscopes, witchcraft in any way, shape, or form. They were through with it. It was all for the Lord Jesus Christ now. You know the verses. How do we prove our election? Adding to our faith. Adding to our faith, virtue and knowledge and godliness, patience and temperance and brotherly kindness and charity. We get up to the topmost stones of brotherly kindness and charity. It's the labor of love. It's the work of faith. It's the patience of hope. The true love of God includes fervent love of the brethren because John, this, this writer, by the Holy Spirit, is going to reason in his epistle. How can a man say that he loves God and doesn't love his brother? Then where is the love of brother? Don't let it be in word, but let it be in deed and in truth. Right. Change lives, because love is the greatest change, because right. we're selfish. And to go do things for other people that wreck your schedule, wreck your time, wreck your, wreck your money, and, and require you to be humble, because you don't like them to begin with, but you love them because they're Christ. I mean, it's huge. And so it should change us. Right. And that's why. You hear mentions of things like the brothers helping brothers with jobs, things like that, anything that you can do. But the more sacrificial and the more service, the more costly it is in time or emotion or energy or money, the better it is. Because then the Lord sees it. The more humble it is. To the least of these, my brethren, notice what that means. You've got to get down. You've got to get down to our little children. You've got to get down to the ones in the room that... Don't have an above 100 IQ. You get down to the ones that don't have a good income. You get down to them. You get down to the ones that are uncouth in the way they conduct themselves. They're unconventional. They don't know how to be smooth and gracious. You get down. Lord, help us to make our calling and election sure and to come to thee in truth and sincerity. We won't accept lip service. We can't stand lip service. Fathers can't stand lip service from their children. Husbands can't stand lip service from their wives. Why in the world should we expect Christ to accept our lip service? Right. How do you show election and regeneration with real coming to Christ? 
Well, in the Bible, it produced violent and extreme repentance, sacrificial discipleship, passion for Christ and souls, continuity no matter the cost, growth in grace, spiritual fruit. It brought joy. It's the joy of my salvation, David said, that I need restored after his sin. He wasn't going to be content knowing the doctrine. It restored to me the joy of my salvation. It's peace. It's passion. It's labor. It's doing something for others. What is dearest to you? What is habit to you? What is personal to you? What is hardest? Give it up. Give them up. Then you give something, then you give something that's thankworthy to the Lord. If we give him something that is easy, he knows it's easy. It doesn't count. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. We have just considered how we should come to Christ in humble submission and repentance and holiness, seeking things that are above and waiting for His coming and loving to be spiritually minded and hating belly worshipers to truly follow Christ. Otherwise, we cannot say we've come to Him. And him that cometh to me, that way I will in no wise cast out. He will cast out many that come to him in another way. And that's the other way of belly worshipers and those who mind earthly things. Because he's going to get rid of this crowd. They came to him in another way. They were disciples in another way. But it wasn't the real way. It wasn't the true way. This is not a mystery. It means to... Your life should be changed. You should want to give the Lord your life. You change everything. You change your speech. You change your moods. You change your sleep. You change your marriage. You change. Because you want to for the Lord. And you would only want to for the Lord if He put it in you by regeneration. And He would only put it in you by regeneration if you were given to Him before the world began. Passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard a testimony read in this pulpit last Sunday of a man who was in total agreement with the truth, loved the truth, listens to every sermon carefully from this pulpit for years with far less advantage than you have. But he was overcome by going back to some sermons. He was first prompted by some John 6 sermons, then he went back to October of 2013 and realized the Bible does distinguish between different comers to Christ. And he saw the person behind the truth. He saw the subject of the truth. He saw the object of the Lord Jesus Christ of the truth. He saw the giver of the goodies. And it was all about the giver now. And that's what I pray, labor, and am up here wishing I didn't have to preach. And that is for you to all come to Christ the right way and to make sure we keep coming every day. It's not not to look back and say, this is what many of us went through. Mm -hmm. Every time I got a doubt about my salvation, right, Adam? I had invited him in my heart when I was three. So every time I got a doubt about salvation, well, I just didn't invite him in seriously enough. So (laughs) I'd pop down wherever I was and invite him into my heart again. Five. 9, 11, 12, 6 times when I was 13, 20 when I was 14, then I'd stopped. 
There were a whole lot more times than that, trust me. I'm just trying to be kind to myself. We're not talking about anything like that. We're not talking about anything like that. It's not to make your words more sincere. It's to make your life sincere in agreement with your words. Add to your faith. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you like those words? No wise. There is nothing, there is no reason that will keep me from receiving you. Him that truly comes to me, and it's so easy. Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God, sent down from heaven, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you are the Lord of the universe, and that I owe you every part of my life. And to live by that, it doesn't mean to do that and then write that date down. That is irrelevant. Many people have said those words and never meant them. Many people have said those words and didn't understand them. Many people have said those words and not lived up to them. The difference is a changed life and to keep doing it. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Any man that comes to Christ that believes on him sincerely will surely be received by him. There's no reason to worry about whether Jesus will receive you, for he will. Consider the thief on the cross and the simplicity of coming. He couldn't change his life more than this. Shut up and stop talking to the Savior that way. Lord, do you know what's involved in that word? Lord, remember me. Not I'm doing something. I just should. Hey, Lord, did you just hear that? What do you think now? Lord, remember me. Because I'm totally dependent upon you remembering me. Remember me when thou comest into thy... Yeah, I think he understood the word Lord. Do you think he understood the word Lord? When thou comest into thy kingdom? Heavenly Father, we have such blessed examples in the Bible. I thank you. He didn't have a life to change. You're all sitting here living. You're not naked, hanging on a cross. You're dressed. You have a day in front of you. In the ordinary course of things, you're going to get many days, weeks, months, or even years. What are you going to do with them? What would he have done? Tell me. What would he have done if Jesus had brought him down from the cross right then? Would he have gone to his home and made the Super Bowl his job, getting his lawn looking perfect, keeping his cars clean, and all that junk as the priorities of his life? Or would he have followed Jesus Christ like Mary Magdalene? Answer me. That's the difference. He didn't have that choice or that chance or that opportunity. You do. I do. It's exciting. He couldn't give the Lord as much as you can give him. It's exciting. Lord, what else can I give you? Does he deserve your best? That's coming to him. But don't overlook the powerful grace that, that changed that thief. You know where that change came from, don't you? He knew he was going to die, and the Lord wasn't going to save him. He didn't, he didn't care. He just wanted to be remembered when Jesus was in his kingdom. The key issue, which is going to be repeated in the verses that come, is the impossibility of coming without God's regenerating grace. The general rule here, all the elect will come, and no others can even come. But anyone that does come, he's welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ because it's a work of grace that brings them, brings us, 
and we come the right way. There is no hindrance from Christ except the strong wording of the verse. I will in no wise cast out. There's no sin you can commit that's going to change that. Repent. He's already paid for it. He's already paid for your future sins. Come to Him and believe that they're forgiven. The hindrance is all in us. The hindrance is in man. It's all within you. It's not in the Redeemer. Jesus received all kinds from Samaritans to publicans, tax collectors against the nation, harlots, prostitutes. Prostitutes came into the kingdom of heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees. Saul of Tarsus, the greatest enemy of the church. He saves all kinds. If the issue is everlasting life without possibility of rejection, why would we wait at all? If the issue is the Lord Jesus Christ, if the issue are these words in the red writing, if the issue is the salvation of your soul, if the issue is to have everlasting life, to lay hold of it, you know how I mean that, if the issue is eternal life with God in heaven, what would hinder you from giving him everything you've got? It's a pity that some Arminians, though very few of them, have life-changing conversions that sometimes put those that know the truth to shame. They give their lives in ignorance. They don't know how to give their lives to Christ. These kind of things that I've just mentioned to you about adding to your faith and climbing up the ladder to charity and good isn't taught. All they can do is look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and some of you heard it yesterday, and that's to you know, to go to some foreign nation as a missionary. But that isn't taught in the epistles of Paul. We're taught much more practical, painful lessons of discipleship, of how we can prove that our faith is sincere. We want our church to be full of those that show God's drawing powerfully. We want God's drawing, thus our coming, and our coming, the true biblical sort, to be visible to all but we don't do it for that it just should be visible changed lives and our lives progressively changing as we grow in grace and bear more and more fruit